We're in Matthew chapter 16 today. You may be struggling like I am with <clears throat> dryness. I mean, I'm talking about physical dryness uh, and having a little difficulty <clears throat> producing saliva for some reason. I don't know why that is, but uh, hopefully it won't cause too much trouble. And I appreciate the water being up here. Let me read the first 12 verses. It's going to be my uh, my my goal anyway is to bring a message from these 12 verses as a as a group of verses, not dissecting everything that is here. Then the <clears throat> Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know, from a child, I, I used to every day look at the horizon to see what kind of weather it was going to be based upon what I'm reading here. And that was a way in which they predicted weather. And actually, it works fairly well, but it's not exactly scientific. There are variations in the atmosphere and so forth. But it was a recognized way of predicting weather uh, then. And it does a pretty good job in most of the world, even today. And so... When you see that that red tent in the morning, you can pretty much predict something's going to happen. If you see the red tent in the evening, there's uh, there's fair weather. Anyway, Jesus says, hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Don't think prophecy there. In other words, don't think future don't think the end of the, the world. That's not what Jesus has in mind when he's saying that. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. So you see, Matthew is putting these two incidences together. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have Brought no bread. Mark tells us that they did have one loaf. So it wasn't that they didn't have any bread, but they didn't have sufficient bread. Do you not yet understand? Or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it? You do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, if we were to take statements from this passage in isolation from the context, we might do as many have done and, and take phrases and preach whole messages, make develop whole series of thoughts from those phrases like the signs of the times, for example, and preach a message on the signs of the times, some prophetic uh, emphasis, or the doctrine of the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I might preach a whole series of messages on what those doctrines are and unpack all of those doctrines. And in fact, there's a booklet in our back on one of our shelves written by Curtis Knapp. You remember he preached one time in our conference on the doctrine, beware, the doctrine of the Pharisees, I think it was. Maybe it was Pharisees and Sadducees, but his booklet back there speaks to both. And I, and I don't say there's, I wouldn't say there's no profit in that. But that's not where I'm going, just to let you know at the outset. Because I don't think that's where Jesus is taking us. Or taking his disciples and then taking his disciples, taking us in these words. I don't think it's the intention of Matthew recording these two incidents in the life of Jesus to bog us down in unpacking all of those details it was after an, an, an intense exchange with a group of Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus turns his attention to his disciples whose faith was still infantile and very impressionable. And he's concerned that they not be influenced by these prominent religious leaders and their teaching whose teaching was not of faith. And that's where we're going with this message. Now keep in mind the context. Jesus has returned to the Galilean shore, that is the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, after doing mighty works, including healings and feeding of the 4,000 that we that were recorded in chapter 15 in a largely Gentile community on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And as he returns to the western side, he is immediately met by a team of unbelieving religious antagonists, Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and Sadducees, it's interesting, they were deeply opposed to one another. They were political enemies. They did not get along. There were theological and political differences between the two. The apostle, the apostle Paul recognized that. You know, he was a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, he says. And in Acts chapter 23, when he was standing before the Sanhedrin, which was a mixture of the Sadducees and Pharisees, when Paul perceived, I'm reading from Acts 23, 6 through 8, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, why did he say that? Because he knew 
that they disagreed with one another. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and no angel, and no spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. The Sadducees were known as deniers of anything after this life. They denied heaven. They denied hell. And the thought occurred to me that maybe this is one reason why Jesus spoke so much about both of those, eternal punishment and eternal life. And he did in his lifetime. It's almost, in fact, that's what a lot of folks say. Jesus said more about, for example, judgment and eternal punishment than anyone else. And in fact, he likely did. I don't know. I've never... Cataloged the, all the things that have been said and come to that conclusion from my own study. But why? Why did he do that? And it may be one of the reasons was the influence of the Sadducees in the Jewish community. And Jesus, in fact, confirmed both. Sadducees were skeptics, focusing upon life here and now. They taught that choices in life, good or bad, related to the law of Moses. And they did relate to the law of Moses. They pressed the law of Moses. But they said the only experience that you have in relationship to the law of Moses is right now. And you may be blessed or you may fall under judgment or curse, but it's only in this life that that happens. Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in a judgment to come and they pressed obedience to Mosaic law and their own additional traditions, which we have seen in chapter 15. Remember, they added to the word of God. And they pressed the obedience to those things, the law, to gain acceptance before God. And as you know, their emphasis was external religion. We've talked a good bit about this, and we'll say more about that as we work our way through Matthew. They were focused on form and ceremony and rituals, righteousness by works of the law. But both of these groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, anticipated a political Jewish kingdom under the leadership of a promised Messiah. And so while they had their differences They had one thing in common. They hated Jesus. He did not fit their view of God's kingdom. They didn't deny God's kingdom. But Jesus did not represent what they understood to be the kingdom of God. In fact, you might summarize that they were takers and not givers, right? From our last hour. hour. We know that from what we read about them in the Gospels. Their mutual goal then was to discredit Jesus, discredit his claims of who he was, discredit the message of his kingdom. They did not believe him. They viewed him as a threat to their theology, to their politics, to their authority. There were believing Jews like Simeon who recognized Jesus, not They didn't just, they didn't, Simeon was one of those believers who didn't say, prove to me that you are the Son of God. Simeon was one of those who functioned in in really a fullness of faith. And when he saw Jesus being brought to him by his parents, parents, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. 
In fact, Simeon and other believers saw the truth, and that is that Jesus himself was a sign. He was the ultimate sign from heaven. But most Jewish religious leaders were darkened in their minds by unbelief. And Jesus knew that their request for a sign from heaven was an attempt to discredit Him, not to believe Him. He had already done works that proved He was the promised Messiah. If you flick flip back to Matthew chapter 11, remember John the Baptist began to have some questions as he was in prison for a long time. And, and he sent word to, to Jesus from, by his own disciples and said, go ask Him, is He the one that we're looking for? Jesus answered and said to them in, in Matthew eleven four and 5, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. And these were signs. And so that there's, as I preached in a previous message from Matthew 12, 28 and 29, there's nothing wrong with signs in their place if faith engages with those signs that are given. And so the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's what Jesus did. And while it wasn't the only reason that He did what He did, He was full of compassion and He was coming showing who God was in His compassion toward those who were in need. He was also demonstrating that He indeed was the one sent from God. He was the Messiah. He demonstrated that. His ministry not only was demonstra- of that nature was not only demonstrated to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. His ministry to Gentiles fit the messianic prophecies of Isaiah. And all of these things should have been viewed by the Pharisees and Sadducees who supposedly knew the Old Testament Scripture as indicators that the Messiah has come. In fact, Matthew has, a, has pointed this out. Jesus, the prophecy of his ministry, the Messiah's ministry to Gentiles back in chapter 12. And I'll not read the whole portion quoted from Isaiah. But in verses 20 and 21, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. And so in this previous chapter, 15, he has ministered in the Gentile region. Of course, the Jews knew this. The Jewish leaders knew this. But because of their darkened minds and unbelief, they challenged Jesus to produce a sign from heaven. Because they want to expose him as a fraud. They didn't think he could do what they were asking. What were they asking him to do anyway? A sign from heaven. Maybe making the sun stand still. Maybe some of those fantastic signs that they knew of from the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, you remember in John chapter 6, they said to him that our fathers received manna from heaven. In John chapter 6, verses 29 and 30. And so they said to him, show us a sign. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. I am the sign. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? The problem with these Jewish leaders and with 
much of the Jewish nation was they didn't see him. And so in verses 2 through 4, Jesus exposes these religious unbelievers. He calls them hypocrites. He knows they're not sincere. I'm of the impression that if there had been sincerity, had they truly been asking from a heart desiring to believe that Jesus would have responded differently, but he's responding to men who are opposed to him with a deep darkness of unbelief. Jesus could have produced any kind of cosmic wonder imaginable, but they would not have been swayed in their hearts toward him. And he knew this. He says to them in verse 3, You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot. You don't have the ability to discern the signs of the times. And what's he talking about? He's talking about that epic period in history that is upon them when he says the signs of the time. That word signs or the word times is referring to an epoch, to an age. There was something that was on the verge of happening, in fact, was happening as Jesus walked upon the earth. And all signs accompanying the life and ministry of Jesus, including his ministry to the Gentiles, indicated that an epic change was coming. He was the fulfillment of the law and prophets, and He had come. And so Jesus chides them because they discerned natural, daily weather weather patterns, but were unable to see what was before their very eyes as He, the very epic changing one, the very sign himself stood, the very bread of life himself stood before them. They couldn't see him. The one sent from heaven to change the very climate of world history. The one who was full of grace and truth to more than just the Jews, but to the nations of the world. They were fixated on ethnicity. They were fixated on the law as an end of it, as an end in itself. And they were fixated on this life as an end in itself, especially the Sadducees. They were blinded by unbelief. So Jesus says in verse four, he calls them out, really. He characterizes them. As a wicked and adulterous generation. I spoke on that phrase um, a number of weeks ago from chapter 12. I'm not going into any depth here on that. But he says this to them because they, in unbelief, were rejecting Jehovah's love. Who sent his own eternally begotten son to save his people from their sins. And Jesus calls them out and says, as you reject me, you're rejecting Jehovah's love. You're a wicked and adulterous generation seeking after a sign when the sign is standing before you. Later on in chapter 17, 
In verse 17, Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, faithless, unbelieving. That's really at the heart of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a people blinded by unbelief. They were rejecting the God of Israel, the very God that they professed to believe, the very God they professed to worship, they were actually rejecting. And what does Jesus say? No sign shall be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. They were asking for authentication. They were asking for a validation that he was who he claimed to be. And what does Jesus do? He points them back 800 years to the Word of God, actually. He points them back to that which none of them witnessed. But they could read about it in the story of Jonah. And of course, the story of Jonah was being swallowed into the great fish and and being in the belly of the great fish for three nights. And then on the third day, being spit out, resurrected from the belly of the great fish. And what was the result of that? The result of the resurrection of Jonah was conversion of Gentiles, Nineveh. And that's precisely what Jesus, I believe, is saying to these unbelieving Jews. There's the sign. That's the only sign that you are given. And it's a pointer to that which would come within that year of which he is speaking. In which Jesus himself would be placed into the belly of the earth, as it were. And he would be spit out on the third day because the grave could not hold him. And that would be the sign, the ultimate sign, the validation, the authentication that Jesus, in fact, was the Messiah. That that death on the cross wasn't just the death of any old man. There had been many crucifixions. What was the difference between that one and this one? The resurrection validated, vindicated, justified everything done. It's the sign. It was the ultimate sign. Given that Jesus was who we in fact professed to be. You realize that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, everything that he said and did was a hoax. Everything that he said and did was absolutely, at best, he would have been a a moral figure to follow. But it would have done you no good in relationship to being reconciled to God. And brethren, the greatest sign still is what I have just spoken of. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know that He is that because of the resurrection. And so now, in a similar way, as these, as these in this generation, in this, in this wicked and adulterous generation, there are those in our generation and for the last 2,000 years who could be called a wicked and adulterous generation who have not responded to that sign. That is still the greatest sign. And it is recorded in the Word of God. You and I weren't there. You and I didn't see it. Just like they didn't see Jonah. But we have His Word. The testimony of Scripture. And that has been testified to for 2,000, nearly 2,000 years. And it is being testified to today. There is no greater sign than that. There is no sign 
Rather, there is no sign. People are looking for signs today. They want signs and wonders to validate that Jesus was who he claimed to be. I tell you that there is no sign other than the sign of Jonah and the fulfillment of that sign and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the testimony of that sign in his word. And if you don't believe that, then you will remain hardened in unbelief. And notice what Jesus, or excuse me, what Matthew says in verse 4. He says, and he left them and departed. Those are sobering words. He left them and departed. Mark adds this, and I think it's an important addition, though Matthew's not focusing on this, but it is an important addition, and it says this. That he sighed deeply. Jesus sighed deeply and then departed, left them and departed. There was something inside of Jesus. He was not indifferent to what was going on. He saw the darkness of their unbelief. And it wasn't, it wasn't that it didn't move him. It did move him. It moved him compassionately toward them. But he left them and they were sealed in the very judgment of their unbelief. And that which would come because of that unbelief. But it moved Jesus so that he sighed deeply. But I think also the reason that Jesus sighed deeply is because his disciples were there. And his disciples were being influenced. They were being affected. And so he, it is in this context that Matthew continues. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, Jesus with them, of course, they had forgotten to take bread Then said Jesus to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we have taken no bread. And so they have they have gone from the western shore of Galilee to the northeast shore of Galilee uh, in order to continue the ministry that Jesus has determined He's he's leaving the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And his primary point at this juncture is to minister to his disciples in a very particular way. And it really goes on into, into verse 13 and following as he calls out a confession of the faith of the disciples. But their faith is being challenged here. That's the context in which this is being given. And he's saying to them, beware. Of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That is his primary point here as he speaks to them. Jesus is clearly burdened about the potential impact of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this really comes out in the way Jesus says what he says in verse 6. He doesn't just say beware, that would be strong enough. And that's typically the way he spoke. Or sometimes he says take heed or watch. The idea is, have your eyes open, be alert, be circumspect, be, be, and then beware. And so this double impactful warning, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you would think at that, just the way Jesus said that, that alone, they would have, they wouldn't have thought what they thought. 
I mean, they would have known Jesus is talking about something serious. And it wasn't just about the issue of bread. It was something far deeper than that. What is Jesus most concerned about? I don't believe that He's warning against all that the Pharisees and the Sadducees taught, as I indicated earlier. But there's something fundamental about their influence that is of great concern. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is essentially any teaching that introduces doubt, distorts, or distracts in some way from the person, the words, and work of Jesus Christ. Amounting essentially to another gospel. And you can see this as you work your way through the rest of the New Testament. The thing that Jesus was concerned about is the very thing that developed in the early New Testament church, even among the disciples, as we will note. And so Jesus is emphasizing faith in Him. That which the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not have. They were in the Darkness of unbelief. And unbelief always produces darkness. And brethren, it can even creep into your life and mine who are believers. We're warned about that, aren't we? In Hebrews chapter 3, about that, that unbelief which can, can, can produce a hardness or a darkness in us and, and actually getting in the way of our relationship to the living God. The disciples clearly did not understand at first the point Jesus was making. Why didn't they understand? Actually, Mark's gospel only deals with this, really, primarily. But why didn't they understand? Jesus said to them, take it says that they didn't. This is Matthew's kind of commentary in verse five. He's setting the stage when his disciples had come to the other side. They've forgotten to take bread. So that's the context. They've gone to the other side. I don't know why they forgot to take bread. They, they perhaps were in a hurry to leave. I don't know. But in their packing of things, getting things ready, they got into their boat. There was no food. They went to the other side. However how long it took to get there, they got hungry. And it was perhaps in that context that Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Some people have said, that the disciples may have been thinking that Jesus was warning them about the kind of bread to buy. Because under the law, you shouldn't eat just any kind of bread, or at least under the laws that had developed under the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so they thought maybe he was warning them in some way. Verse 7 tells us they reasoned among themselves, saying it's because we have taken no bread. But Jesus being aware of it, said to them, no, it's not because you haven't taken bread. It's because I have something more important to tell you. Is that what he said? I mean, he could have cut to the chase and just said that. That's what he wanted to emphasize. But what did he say? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. But why does he go there? Why does he say that? Why point that out? 
He has just contended with unbelief that rejected Him. Jesus knows the power of unbelief. By the way, Satan knows the power of unbelief as well, which is one of the reasons why he is a a master at seeking to disturb and even destroy your faith. So Jesus says, was he chiding them? Perhaps you could say he was, and in a way he was. But he was saying this to bring an emphasis to them. He cared for them. He loved them. These were his disciples, and he loved them to the end. And oh, you have little faith is a recurring theme of Jesus to his disciples, isn't it? As I said earlier, their faith was infantile, but it was real. It was real. Now, I'm a bit emotional about that because there are times in my own life, I've had seasons in my life where it seems that my faith was hardly there. Maybe you've had those seasons as well. And so when I hear Jesus saying, Oh, you of little faith, I, I feel that He's speaking to me. But not in a harsh way. Not in a condescending way. But in a way to encourage, you see. To stir up that which is in you. That's the love of Christ. That, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. In us. And it is this faith that must grow and by which they must live. And you and I must live. But but there's something Jesus is seeing about the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that threatens that, you see. Little faith. It's interesting in the context, as Jesus speaks, we see that this little faith does affect their understanding. Why did they reason the way they reasoned? Oh, ye of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand? Understand what? They had just seen Jesus. I mean, this not much time has elapsed here. They had seen Jesus do with a few loaves and a few fish what no mere man could do. Twice. Did they forget? Jesus says, Jesus says, or do you remember? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? It wasn't just that I did that. You actually took up a boatload of food. Both times for the seven loaves of the nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up. How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? Where is your mind? Where is your faith? Had the words of influential religious thinkers affected them? You see, we're, we're, we're given the, the Cliff Notes version of what actually happened in real time. Right? Hours passed. We don't know what all was done, but we know that those disciples were hearing 
Not only were they hearing in that moment the emphasis of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the questions they were asking, they had grown up under that influence. It was everywhere. Were there doubts working in their minds about Jesus himself? Do you not yet understand? By the way, that was a a recurring question that Jesus asked his disciples. He asked it earlier in chapter 15. Why is it that you don't understand? And it seems here Jesus is clearly concerned for them to know him and know him in faith, not just see him do these miraculous works like feeding 5,000 and 4,000 and, and the remnants, remnant of bread and fish taken Back up, not just see that like the other Jews saw it and just wanted more. Jesus wanted them to see him. And you see, that's what faith, that's how faith engages. And that's what Jesus wanted. That's what Jesus wants. He doesn't want to just do you good. God doesn't want to just do you good. He wants you to see him, you see. He doesn't want you just to receive the gifts. I want you to see the giver, to see him, to believe him, to trust him, and to not be influenced by the errant teaching and skepticism of the esteemed Pharisees and Sadducees, whoever they might be in our generation. You see, there is a connection between faith and spiritual understanding. And this this kind of hit me and it hit me for my own personal sake. And I hope it will for you as well. But there is a connection between faith and spiritual understanding. As we've said, darkness always is 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 connected with unbelief and light is connected with faith. In fact, understanding comes where there is this faith. Remember Hebrews chapter 11 and verse three. It is by faith that we Understand that the things which were made were made by the word of God. That's how we understand that. So that everything that is came from that which was not. Science can't prove that. It is by faith that we understand that. And when we speak of understanding that, it is that. Faith lays hold of that as a reality. Faith sees that. And faith is not shaken from that. And yet we're living in a world that is continually seeking to shake believers from believing. In Second or First Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul wrote in, to the Thessalonian church, he says, speaks of when the word of God came to them. He says it was the word of God that effectually works in you who believe. There is this emphasis through Scripture where this faith engages, this faith works together with that which is spoken. So that it becomes so that you have spiritual understanding, but unbelief generated by doubts from religious or secular influences can darken our understanding and may lead us even to go away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this hits very close to home to me. I had a conversation with somebody just over the last week 
who once was a bold confessor of Jesus as the Christ and a follower, it seemed, of Christ. And you know where the problem came in this person's testimony? The problem came when they began to question what God said. And how could that be? And how could this be? And unbelief began to grow in the heart of this individual so that darkness has come over this person to such a degree that the Word of God is absolutely irrelevant to this person now. But that began somewhere. Jesus is concerned about this. Jesus is concerned that His disciples, including you and me, not be affected by teaching that comes from unbelieving religious deniers and skeptics. Beloved, we must believe Him. Jesus spoke to some religious leaders on another occasion. and It's recorded in John chapter 5, verses 38 through 40. But you do not have His Word abiding in you. Because, this is interesting, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. Search the Scriptures, or you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of Me, but you're not willing to come to Me. To Me. In the context in which Jesus is speaking, they're not denying God. They're not saying God doesn't exist. But they don't see Him to be the one sent from the Father. They don't hear Him speaking and believe the words that He is speaking and respond in faith. But you're not willing to come to Me that you may have life. Hearing Jesus in faith is critical to our understanding and a proper response to Him. The writer to the, of the Hebrew letter put it this way in chapter 4, verse 2, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Beloved, I want to encourage you. We must not hear the Word of Christ. We must not hear the Word of God to analyze if what He says is true. And that's a dangerous possibility, especially as you're engaging with folks like Pharisees and Sadducees. We must hear Him as the very voice of God. That's what the Father said, right? This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Hear Him. The spirit of Pharisees and Sadducees is to cast doubt and question the validity of Jesus and His words. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Have you been there? Have you been under the influence? Maybe even the influence of your own thoughts, but the influence of those that you have listened to or read after. But I want you to know, dear child of God, dear disciple of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is speaking to you as He does to His disciples, even if you have little faith. And if you judge yourself to have little faith, take hope. Be encouraged. He is speaking to you to believe Him and to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that would influence you away from Him. Jesus knew that the influence of these religious teachers would affect His followers, and they did. You know Peter's struggle. I'm not going to take time to unpack all of that, but you're aware of that. It's very... It's found throughout the book of Acts, you see it. And then in Galatians, the Apostle Paul, you recall, had to actually confront Peter. The influence of this doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, often referred to as Judaizers. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul says in chapter 2 of Galatians, verses 11 through 14, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. They weren't unbelievers. They weren't lost men. These were followers of Jesus Christ, but were influenced, were affected. By the doctrine, the teaching of Pharisees and Sadducees. And here was the issue for Paul. Because he didn't disagree with everything the Pharisees said or the Sadducees. Nor did Jesus disagree with everything the Pharisees said or the Sadducees said. That wasn't the issue. Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. There was the issue. Something was happening. The truth of the gospel was being affected. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Why are you taking them backwards? You remember the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15 where they dealt with a similar issue. The whole church did on that occasion. And this is what Peter actually said this. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Jews and Gentiles saved the the same way. The grace of Jesus Christ. Beloved, beware. Beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Their teaching And their emphasis is still influential. Take heed and beware of any message that casts doubt upon or adds to the Word of God. Beware. Take heed and beware. 
And you might think, well, well, that's a no-brainer. Listen, there are those who once thought the same thing who are now departed because of the influence that they placed themselves under. Beware of any message that minimizes faith in Jesus. Looking for signs to validate the gospel. Michael referred to 1 Corinthians 1 in the last hour. I'll read verses 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. And Greeks seek after wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. Which is to say, not just a man on a cross. He preached Christ crucified, which involved the resurrection and all that is involved in that shorthand of Christ dying and rising again. But that's a, to the Jews, that's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Beware of any message that minimizes faith in Jesus Christ and treats that as something that is not significant. And then beware of any message that teaches a righteousness before God by the keeping of laws, of works, and not faith. You say, preacher, we know these things already. Listen, these things can subtly get into the church and they can subtly creep into your, to your life. And when you hear even a moment, um, a thought, a direction in, in, that, in that way, by the teaching of anyone, by the influence of anyone, by the emphasis of anyone, your antenna ought to go up. And you need to beware. Paul said, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on Him shall not be ashamed. The Jews, these that Paul is writing about here who were seeking righteousness by the law, they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Paul goes on to write in seeking to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Beware of any message that adds to the all-sufficient righteousness of God in Christ. It's not enough that somebody just talks of Jesus. It's not enough that somebody just talks of believing in Jesus. Listen to their whole message. Are they putting pressure on you? Are they putting a weight upon you? 
in order to do something, whatever that something is, in order to finish the work, in order to finish the reconciliation. In other words, you can't have a relationship with God apart from whatever those things are that they are telling you to do. Doctrine of Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of any message that promotes religious traditions and a lifestyle apart from a relationship with God in Christ, in whom alone we have a sure hope of eternal life. Pharisees and Sadducees represent all who are religious, but are not convinced of any real need that only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can meet. And so unbelief, like Pharisees and Sadducees, will never be convinced by signs. Even the resurrection. You remember Jesus said, they have Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear them, they'll not be convinced, they'll not believe. In other words, though one rose from the dead. Unbelief like Pharisees and Sadducees, is not opposed to religious tradition, but is comfortable with living life apart from Jesus. It's a life simply of religious tradition. Unbelief, like Pharisees and Sadducees, is skeptical. Unable to discern that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. The only way to the Father. Unbelief, like Pharisees and Sadducees, questions what it cannot naturally see. What the mind can't wrap itself around. And therefore, there is no heart. There is no affection. For things above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Unbelief can't go there, you see. The Pharisees and Sadducees. The teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees will never take you there. And so beware of the influence of unbelief. And those who teach from a spirit of unbelief. Beware, finally, of any message that clouds your understanding. And turns you, your heart away from Jesus Christ. Beware. That's the message that Jesus gives us this morning. See him. Believe him. Oh, ye of little faith. Or if you're one with great faith, the answer is the same. Look unto Jesus. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, You would lift up your Son today in the minds and hearts.